Thanks, Daniel. Good morning, church. Good morning. Thanks, Luke. Let's take our Bibles look at Acts chapter 11. Hey, we're back in Acts this morning. Acts chapter 11. And it is good for us in the life of the church to step aside and, and uh, remember certain things we've been doing the last three weeks, looking at our, uh, our core values, and then <clears throat> obviously wanted to celebrate uh, the Christmas season together. We're going to be back in Acts today. And uh, yeah, the way that we, uh, we started this series, we're just going to be in Acts and be in Acts till we get done with Acts. So uh, there's a great prophet, as we'll see, actually in the text this morning, God's people walking through Scripture together. A couple pastoral notes, uh, Justin mentioned it, but also at 2 o'clock today, let me just hit again, there'll be a, uh, a celebration uh, on the courthouse, because today is Sanctity of Human Life uh, Sunday. Churches across our country are, are, are celebrating um, what we prayed for for a long time. Um, at the same time, there's a lot of work to do. And so Brittany Sherman, who's a member here, she's the director of the Choices Clinic in Laurel. She's actually um, speaking at a church in New Augusta this morning. Um, but it, it's important to realize that just because in our state, because what, what that decision did, it gave power back to the states, which is kind of in the Constitution, by the way, right? Um, and we have, our state has, uh, you know, has, has passed laws against abortion. That didn't mean every state in the country has done that. And so even women and families in our state are still being impacted by the decisions of other states. And so a lot of people thought that just because Roe versus Wade was overturned, that means that there's no abortion going on in the country. Don't bury your head in the sand, okay? And so there is a lot of frontline ministry. I just was in this week, uh, Brittany and I had a meeting about this, uh, this event today, and again, just so thankful for what the Choices Clinic does, and that's why we partner with them. That's at 2 o'clock today um, on the steps. Also, if you walked in, um, in the back, you'll see uh, a bunch of books, and uh, Craig Ziemba, who's a retired colonel in our, in our military, he wrote a book called uh, Talitha Arise, and it deals with these, uh, these issues of like abortion, as well as, uh, as trafficking, and, uh, and human slavery and the, the sanctity of life that God places upon. Those are for you out there. So if you want to read a new book, we're thankful for, uh, for Craig. Thank you, brother, for, for providing those. We're always, and more and more this year, you're going to see, we want to help you have resources. So if we don't mention something, but man, you're struggling with something or, or thinking about something and, and, uh, want, and, and just say, you know, I, I want to know how I can deal with this or what are some good resources uh, we want to put those in your hands. So this is a, a real good one, and it's a book written by one of our members here at Crosspoint. Pretty cool. Also, in, uh, in, in the, the lobby area is a sign-up sheet with information about a mission trip this summer. We're going to send another team back to the Dominican Republic uh, with Rain Down Global. We partner with that ministry. We, we sent six last year, and uh, so information for that. If, if God's been working in your heart to, to go outside the country and to see uh, how the gospel and how Jesus is building his church outside our country, great opportunity. That's this summer, so you got plenty of time to prep for it. It's in there. Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11. We finished um, in early December in verse... 18. And so we're going to pick up in, uh, in verse 19. That's where we're going to be this morning. We are hopefully going to get through the end of chapter 11. We may not do that. The great thing, uh, if we don't get finished with it, guess what? We're back here next Sunday. They, they said that uh, you know during the days of the Reformation, John Calvin was driven out of uh, Geneva. And for three years, he didn't preach in Geneva. And uh, when they asked him they realized their mistake of, of, of asking him to leave. They invited him back. And so three years later, he got into the pulpit for the first time, and he went 
back to the next verse where he had left off with three years prior. So that's, uh, that's what we're doing, uh, but not three years, only, only uh, a few months. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the preaching of his word. Thanks for praying for me the last few weeks. I was in North Carolina working on uh, some, some seminars for, uh, for my PhD degree. I'm about 75% through uh, with the seminar stage. And uh, hopefully at the end of this year, we'll start focusing on dissertation. I'll tell you all to say, uh, I had two great weeks. My first week, I was with uh, a good friend, and he's a missions professor and has a heart for Laurel. He actually came to Laurel this, uh, this past summer and, and actually gave some people in our church um, one of his books. But his name's Dr. Scott Hildreth, and day one, he kind of blew my mind. And this has kind of been rattling in my heart for the last three weeks, and I couldn't wait to, to share it with you. As we've been walking through our core values now, we're committed to truth, to people, and mission. This is what Dr. Hildreth said on day one of a seminar two weeks ago. The church does not have a mission. Pause. The mission has a church. Now, when you start thinking about that, you've got to understand that mission is not one thing that the church is called to do. That God is on mission, God has been on mission, God will always be on mission, and <laughs> he's called us to participate in his mission. In this age, in this time, from the death and resurrection of Jesus until Christ calls his church home to be with him, everything in the middle is the church participating in God's mission. And this is revolutionary. Because again, what it means is, it's not a question of whether or not what my mission is. It's a question of whether or not I will waste my life or spend my life to work with God in his mission. That's the point. In America, we can get sidetracked on all these different empires and side missions and agendas and forget that as Christians, everything that we've called to do, there is no sacred secular split in the Christian life. Everything is to be done for the glory of God, and everything is to be done in participation with God in his mission. 
And so when we get to this passage, we see God again reminding us of the mission. Now it's been a minute, so just think back with me the big points of Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. To the original disciples, not just the 12, but a company of 120 to possibly 500. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And the whole point of the book of Acts is for us to see how the church, empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, starts expanding. We, I think one time in this series we called it stages. There's different stages of outward advance. So the title of the message this morning is Gospel Advance. And we're going to see here in this passage how God advances the gospel through faithfulness, through encouragement, and through generosity. This passage is very unique, though, because it is a turning of the hinge. And what I mean by that is Luke has kind of stepped aside. If you'll just write this down and, and just look at it later on. In Acts chapter 8, as soon as Stephen is put to death, there's a persecution that arises, and people leave. People flee Jerusalem, right? And then in Acts chapter 8, we're told about Philip and Samaria, Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Saul, Acts chapter 10, Peter realizing that the gospel's for the Gentiles, where Justin walked us through verse 18, the last time we were in Acts, how the church is like, oh, wow, the Gentiles are included in this. And we should all be stoked by that because that's why we're here this morning, Gentile. That's all we are. Praise God, the gospel's for the Gentiles. But you have to understand that the beginning of our passage this morning, this is what is happening while chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, and half of chapter 11 are going. Luke basically stopped the flow of the story to step aside in order to show us the struggle with understanding the gospel was for the Gentiles as well, but also to show God's deep work and preparation to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Because as crazy as the Samaritans, the difference is between the Samaritans, they're still half Jewish, right? And what does God do in chapter 9? He saves the eventual apostle to the Gentiles. And then he shows Peter, the leader of the apostles, the light bulb comes on. And so now what happens is Luke brings us back into the story and shows us what's been happening the whole time. This is also an important passage. I'll put it on the screen for you as we start our walk through the text. This passage is what we might say a, a, has a series of firsts. And it's pretty wild that all of these things happen for the first time in Acts in these 12 verses. Here they are. We're going to see this morning that this is really the first wide-scale evangelism of Gentiles in the book of Acts. We'll see also this is the first use of the term Christian in the book of Acts. I don't know if you know this, Christian's only mentioned three times in the Bible. This is one of them. First mention of prophets in the church? We're going to talk about prophets this morning. That's what I thought the response would be, right? <laughs> this is the first instance of financial gifts from one local church to another. And then the last verse has the first reference to elders in the church. So again, a lot to get to. If we don't get it all, we'll come back next week. No problem. But you got to understand what Luke's doing here. Notice what he says in verse 19. Now there are those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled. 
So people are coming from Jerusalem. And if you look at the development of the book of Acts in chapters 1 through 7, you got a Jewish church. In chapter 8, you have a Samaritan church formed. In chapter 10, at Caesarea, you have a Gentile church formed. But the beauty of the church that will be formed here at Antioch is that it's really the first church in the Bible that is a mixture of Jews and Gentiles together. And it's this church at Antioch, and we'll learn more about the city here in just a minute. It's so monumental because this church then becomes really the sending church for the Apostle Paul in the future. It's a big text. It's an important text for us. The way that I want us to walk through the text, (coughs) there won't be a ton of notes on the board, and I've just kind of divided it into three different statements And I hope you would allow me to do that this morning because there's a lot that that is going on here that we need to notice. Three main statements this morning. The first statement is, I want you to see the anonymous that faithfully shared the gospel. We have a group of people in these first three verses. We don't know who they are. We don't know what their names are. We don't know if they were all men or all women or a group of men and women. We don't know really anything about them other than the fact they shared the gospel. Those that were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. I need visuals. So I want to show you this. This is a map of what's going on. All right. This is Jerusalem. I feel like I'm like at a Microsoft presentation in like late 1998. Okay, here we go. Here's Jerusalem. Okay. Now this is where the first church is, obviously. We do find instances in chapter 9 that the gospel had spread to Joppa. And where we left off, the gospel had spread to Caesarea. This is about 70 miles, okay? Now, the first 11 chapters of the book of Acts, this is as far as they've gotten. That's it. 70 miles. That's it. I had to review a book recently for a seminar, and the the last chapter was called The Hidden Message of Acts. And I was like, what's, what's going on? And this guy was putting forth that the first 11 chapters of Acts don't show the church's willingness to fulfill the Great Commission, but their reluctance. 11 chapters, and this is all you got. This is it. Now, I would like to think that for what they didn't have, budgets and buildings and vehicles and the internet, that's probably a whole lot more than what some of us do today. One man said he could go to the back of his Bible. I think this was Leonard Ravenhill that said he could go to the back of his Bible and just look at the maps and weep because he saw all that they did with nothing and all that we don't do with everything. But still, this is it. But we're told, you can leave them, just leave the map up for a minute, Dilo, please. We're told that after the persecution, they started traveling as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus. This is Phoenicia. So notice the apostles, Peter, 
By a work of the Spirit, only got him 70 miles. That's how hesitant the apostles were. This is this ginormous hurdle and, and struggle about who's the gospel really for. We got some unnamed believers, and guess what they start doing? They start working their way up the coast. And doesn't it say there in verse 19 and verse 20 that they went to Cyprus? Some of them got on a boat. That's pretty awesome. But then we're told that they get to Antioch. Antioch is in the region of Syria, and it's the bottom of what we would call modern-day Turkey. Now, what you need to know about this city, because it plays into a huge, huge, huge role later on. So Antioch was actually formed in 300 B.C. You've heard of Alexander the Great. When he died, his empire was split up into four parts. Each part was taken over by one of his generals. One of his generals, Seleucus Nicator, founded Antioch in 300 B.C., he actually named it after his father, Antiochus, and over the course of the next 300 years, it became an amazing city. It was a free city. People were given citizenship there. And by the time of the first century, Antioch was the third most important city in the Roman Empire. Now, if you know anything about the population of ancient cities, there was between 250 to 500,000 people in the city. That's enormous for an ancient city. And there was a huge contingent of Jews there, between 25 to 50,000 Jews. We even have reports from history that there may have been people from the Orient there, people from India there. And after the Romans took it over, you had people from Europe there. It was the third most important city in the empire behind Roman, Roman Alexandria. And what had happened was it had basically become an international city, multi-ethnic, and these Christians, without any dreams or visions, we're not told about anything in the text, what do they do? They just make their way up the coast, and wow, all of a sudden, they land in this place called Antioch. And what do they do? The Bible says that some were only speaking to the Jews, because you have this hurdle, right? Who's the gospel really for? Who's the gospel meant for? But I would say... Acts chapter 11, verse 20 is probably what you would call the unsung heroes of the early church. But there were some of them, and we're told specifically who these men were. They were men, and they were from Cyprus, this island, and Cyrene. If you've, that's popped up before. Remember the guy that carried the cross for Jesus? This is North Africa. So there were men, check this out, they were outsiders. They were Jews, but they spoke Greek. And it says that they went to Antioch, they spoke, some of your Bibles say to the Greeks, some, some say to the Hellenists also. Now, what does that mean? Basically, they said, we're here, there's a bunch of people, and let's preach Christ. We don't know who they are. And it seems as if their identity is inconsequential. Luke is putting them forward as an example to say, wherever they went, they shared Christ. Now, notice how they contextualize the message. This is good. They didn't go, and notice verse 20 says, they didn't preach the Lord Christ. They didn't preach Messiah. This is how we know that they were preaching to Greeks, that they were preaching to Gentiles. 
is because when you show up and you start talking about Messiah, there is no reference point in a Greek's mind for Messiah. They're not Jews. They don't have the Old Testament. They don't understand the prophets. And so what did they do? They just came and they said, there is one that you need to know and he is Lord. Y'all, this is wild in the first century because people would say Caesar is Lord. Caesar has all authority. And these unnamed heroes show up driven from a costly situation where one of their leaders was put to death and they roll up in Antioch and they say, check this out. You need to know about this one who has all authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. His name is Jesus. We see the first instance of cross-cultural evangelism. That I'm not like you, and you're not like me, and we come from different backgrounds, but we have the same need. We are sinners in need of a Savior, and the only one that can save is this one called the Lord Jesus. And let me just stop there just for a second. I want you to notice that the emphasis here is on who Christ is, not what Christ does. Now, that's very important. Because today in many circles, the church presents Christ as someone who helps our needs. And so we view Jesus just like we do Verizon or C Spire or our internet or our power, that Jesus provides a service for us. Now, obviously, he provides the best service because he provides on the eternal level. Salvation is not a consumer product. And the American church needs to learn once again that there must be an emphasis on who Jesus is first before we emphasize what he does. He's always been Lord. And he doesn't exist to give us a hell insurance policy. He doesn't exist to pick our chins up when we feel needy. He does all those things joyfully and willfully. And he does them in grace. He does it because of who he is. That's who they emphasize. And what do we see? And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number of people who believe turn to the Lord because the Lord is blessing several things. The Lord's blessing the fact that they, that they went. The Lord's blessing the fact that they shared. The Lord's blessing the fact that they are preaching. The Lord's blessing the fact that wherever they find themselves are, they are sharing the gospel. The Lord is blessing this. Make note also, real quick, in verse 19, those who were scattered. I mentioned this when we were walking through chapter 8, but it's the same word that Luke uses in chapter 8. It's, it's, the, it's the Greek word to disperse. It's the Greek word to scatter. And so check this out. From man's point of view, they're just going every which way. This persecution's come, and they're just kind of thrown every which way. But from the sovereign view, guess what? God is placing his people right where they need to be placed. God is preparing the gospel for the world, and then God is sending his people into the world. In this most third most important city in the empire, just happens to be 300 miles up the coast from Jerusalem. Not an accident, y'all. Sovereign will. God sending his church out. If you're praying, seeking the Lord, trying to submit to his will, then thank him that you are where you are right now because God has not just, just randomly thrown you. God has a purpose right where you are. And it's probably to preach the Lord 
Jesus. One more thing about these before we move on. I love the fact that they're not named. I love the fact that they are simply obeying God because they know they should obey God. Their eye isn't on the recognition. Their eye <coughs> isn't on who knows who they are. They are simply doing their duty. Y'all, like, like, they didn't know that the book of Acts was going to come into being. Like, this is real time. This is happening in real time. They're not saying, well, let me go to this because, man, there's going to be this Gentile doctor that writes about it, and we're going to publish it in all these English translations, and then it's going to be translated all over the world. They just found themselves one morning in Antioch and said, man, whatever I do today, I need to share Christ. It's amazing. It's amazing how God delights in using people who don't care who gets the credit but Jesus. It's amazing. I see it in my life, and maybe you see it in your life, how we today maybe only want to do things to be seen or recognized by others. Social media reinforces this in our culture. We need to realize that in the Bible, these unsung heroes, they never expected to be written about. They never expected <laughs> who would see them because they knew that, that God saw them. So it didn't matter who else saw them. I think it's also important to note here that we should never expect salvation without proclamation. We should never expect reaping without sowing. We don't have any right to expect people to be saved if we never share the gospel with them. Were there rejections here? Sure. <laughs> Was there issues here? Sure. But Luke reminds us that the Lord was with them and a great number of people believed. Why? Because they shared the gospel. Because they opened their mouth. Because they told other people about Jesus. Can I ask you a question this morning as we sum up this first statement? Who are you? Who am I? Who, who am I engaging with the gospel? Who are you engaging with the gospel? And maybe the hang-up to why you're not engaging people is because you're seeking their favor rather than God's favor. I'm not saying that to throw you under the bus. I'm just saying, like, uh, one of my professors said this, said this too. He said, dude, it's always awkward to share the gospel. It just comes with the territory. Like, just get over it and share the gospel. Like, th there's nothing that we can say because we have to remind ourselves this is a cosmic conflict. Our, our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers. So, so it, it, it's, it, we should expect resistance as we try to share the gospel. But we got to ask ourselves. A few years back as a church, you walked through, who's my one? That's awesome. Start there. But maybe for some of you, it's like, who's my three? Who's my five? Get a sticky note. Stick it on your, your mirror in the morning. Pray for them. Find ways to tangibly love them. Open your mouth and share the gospel. This is how the church grew. It's so amazing to me how we just like, why doesn't God save anybody? And God's like, when did you share the gospel last? They faithfully shared the gospel. So God begins to work. And in verse 22, we find out that this report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they, in response, sent Barnabas to Antioch. Second statement this morning I want you to see is that the son of encouragement exhorted new believers and shared the work with Saul. This really condenses 
and states what's going on in these next five verses. We find a dude named Barnabas. Now, we've already encountered him twice in the book of Acts at the end of chapter 4. Remember the guy right before Ananias and Sapphira gets struck dead from lying to the Holy Spirit? You, you remember they, they brought all this and acted like, you know, made this big show about they'd given all this money. You remember that they did that because Barnabas had actually, with a good heart and with a good motive, had sold property and brought it to the apostles' feet. And we're told there that his real name was Joseph, and he was from Cyprus. So even though he was a Jew, he was an outsider. He was a Greek-speaking Jew. But we're told there that his name is, he was given the nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Anybody have a nickname a long time back? Like at West Jones, particularly on the baseball team in high school, my nickname was Ogre. Yeah. Randy Cooley gave that to me in eighth grade. You remember Coach Cooley taught history? He gave me that name. <clears throat> Thankful Lauren married the Ogre, right? When I got to college and played football at Southern Miss, I became Rev, which is a much better name than, than Ogre. I want to ask you to share your nickname, but you know, sometimes, as it's been said, nicknames can be funny. You know, they can be candid or they can be serious, but there's most of the time a nickname has some element of truth in there, right? This guy is known for being an encourager. So if, if I were to say, like, who, who's an encourager? Like somebody just comes in your mind, right? Some of you play golf with them. You hit like a 90-degree slice, and that guy's like, well, get them next time, dude, or I didn't see it, hit another one. Like, I don't, because like my default gift, like I think sometimes I have the spiritual gift of discouragement, okay? Like that's what I think sometimes. But you ever been around encouraging people? Right? They're great to have. And if that's your gift, continue to practice it. I think there's an admonishment for all of us to be encouragers in the scripture, but this guy had something extra. And so the church says, we're hearing about something going on in Antioch. Let's, let's check it out. So it's no accident that they send Barnabas. Why? He's from Cyprus, so he's regionally there. He, he speaks the language. But you just want this guy to really check out what's going on. So they send him to Antioch. Now, what's his response? Did he come with like being critical? Did he come with a notepad, like looking for all the, the faults? Or did he, what, what, no. It says here that when he came, he saw the grace of God, he was glad. <laughs> Literally in the, in the Greek, full of joy. And what did he do in response? He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. His response to what he sees Many people getting saved as a result of sharing of the gospel is that he gets full of joy. I was listening to a message this week about this text. I think was, I was listening to Alistair Begg this week, and Begg brings up this point. Great, great preacher, by the way. Begg says, isn't it amazing that Barnabas had nothing to do with this, and yet he was happy about it? <laughs> That's awesome, isn't it? Some of us be like, I'm going to give you the old stink eye because I went around when it happened. You know what Barnabas is? He sees the evidence of God's grace through the sharing of the gospel. He sees these people who have no reference point in relation to the gospel, and yet they're believing the gospel. And what does he do? Man, he gets fired up. He's full of joy. He's not callous. He's not arrogant. And even though he's named here, doesn't he have the same attitude as the ones we looked at in 19 through 21? 
He doesn't care who gets the credit. He's just thankful that God did a work. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord and with steadfast purpose. Now, encouragement comes in many forms. And if you go back and look at the other two instances of Barnabas, you'll see how he encouraged people. The first way he encouraged people was with money. He came and sold a field and laid the money down and it encouraged people. <laughs> money encourages people, okay? If somebody can't pay their power bill and there's like $500 in their mailbox that they can pay their power bill and other things, even if it's anonymous, guess what? That person's heart is encouraged. Remember early in, in our marriage, Lauren and I went, I, I, we drove like three and a half hours. I preached somewhere, Lauren went with me. I didn't even like get paid for the event, okay? We, we got back to our house and there was a little note in like, I'm, I'm not, it was, just, it was like in senior adult cursive. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like old school cursive. No, this chicken scratch that all of us do it in, right? Somebody had taken time and it was just, all they said was, they just said, here's some money to pay for your bills. And they just said like a servant of the Lord. And it was, uh, like we, we took heart. We were encouraged. And so Barnabas encourages through his finances. But then in chapter 9, Saul gets saved. I was thinking about this too. Like, like what if, what if like, <laughs> you imagine what happened in the church at, at Jerusalem, like when they had starting point, by the way, it's coming up in two weeks, right? Starting point, membership class, February the 5th. Like what if Saul of Tarsus, Christian terrorist, showed up and said, hey, I want to go through starting point. Like, hey, dude, we'll get back with you, okay? <laughs> Nobody believes this guy's a believer. But who comes alongside of him? Barnabas. Barnabas encouraged through his resources, but he also encouraged through his relationships. And Barnabas goes, and it doesn't say that he sends him on his way. It doesn't tell him that he like points the way. It says that he took him. He, Barnabas, took Saul and went with him and presented him to the brothers and told them how he had seen the Lord on the road. I think Beg, Alistair Begg said this also. If it weren't for Ananias going at the Lord's prompting, to share with Saul, and if it wasn't for Barnabas coming alongside and encouraging Saul and introducing him to the church, you have to rewrite most of the New Testament. That's how important encouragement is. But in America, we just kind of bump our force field into each other's force fields and don't awkwardly ask anybody how they're doing or encourage them or affirm them because that's not how we roll. Well, check this out. This is how we roll. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day appearing. Affirm people. Encourage people. Now, how does he encourage them? It says in verse 23, he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So he comes and he sees evidence that people are truly converted. Now, this is good. There needs to be affirmation that people have been truly converted. There needs to be that. That's why when you, when you join Cross point, like we sit down with you because we want to hear about your testimony. Like we, it's our job to hear your profession of faith and for us to affirm you, not that, not that we're God. But I can remember one time at a, at a local church, somebody stood up and shared their testimony and it was about like squirrel hunting and how they found their wallet in the woods and they knew that because they found their wallet in the woods, they were a Christian. What? But it's not just that. Just because you walk an aisle, pray a prayer, and get dunked doesn't mean you're a Christian either. Just because you have a, a sense of morality doesn't make you a Christian. 
Just because you've given money doesn't make you a Christian. Can I just tell you this morning, in South Mississippi, often what holds people back from the new birth is their own self-righteousness. That they think that God will adjust the rules for them. But Jesus says, unless a man is born again, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And so Barnabas comes and Barnabas senses that this is real. And so what does he do? He encourages them. He exhorts them. And what is the exhortation? Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, saying, keep walking, y'all. Keep going. Steadfast purpose. This one thing you do. Be faithful to the Lord. Why does he do that? In verse 24, we find out he's a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That's probably its own message there. He was good, not in himself, but God's grace at work in him. This meant that he sought to do good. That meant that he possessed the character. This is the fruit of the Spirit of goodness because he was full of the Holy Spirit. Just in a few weeks ago, preached on what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit. We're all indwelt by the Spirit if we're born again, but we must seek to be full of the Spirit for him to control us. That one of the first prayers of the day should be, Spirit, today control me. Not that I'm inviting you in my life. You already live in me, but control me. It's like the idea of a, of, a, of a sail. You hoist the sail and you wait on the wind and the wind fills the sail and the wind directs where the ship goes. That's the same idea. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And he was full of faith. And he hung on to God's promises. He knew God's word and he believed that God would always keep his word. The substance of things hoped for, the expectation of things not yet received. And notice the bookend at the end of verse 24. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So they got all these Christians, new Christians. What do we do? <laughs> Barnabas again, because he doesn't care who gets the credit for it, says, I need help. Now he ain't even going back to Jerusalem yet. So who comes into his mind? And probably because in his earlier interactions with Saul of Tarsus, he saw how this guy was going to be used by the Lord and how gifted he was. And so what does he do? He says that he went to look for Saul. The word look there means to diligently search, to, to seek out. It implies like difficulty in the task. But he finds him and notice what he does. He brings Saul back to Antioch. And so for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Don't you love Barnabas? He says, listen, this isn't me ministry. This is we ministry. This is we serving together. I can't do it on my own. This is why he's described as being full of the Holy Spirit. He's rejecting self at all places. I don't know what's going on in Antioch, but let me go see. Wow, that's God. <laughs> I believe it. God did it. I didn't have to be here. God did it. Wow, this is crazy. I need some help. Let me go find Saul. So you see how Barnabas is going to do something, but God's working all the time. And I just think it's important for us to note that for a whole year, they met with the church and they taught. Now check this out. The church must be taught the word of God. This is why I'm thankful that it's 1107 and nobody has set their alarm off yet. We've been in the building service an hour and seven minutes. 
And I know that if Justin or I make a reference to time, some of you are going to rebuke me after the service. Can I just affirm you and say one of the things I'm grateful for in our local fellowship is that more and more and more, we want the word of God. And if we're only going to do this once a week, we might as well eat while we're here, right? It's always funny coming out of the children's ministry. They say, hey, are you preaching today? And today I was like, I'm sorry. Because <laughs> one time I said, hey, you know, I only go like five or ten minutes longer than Justin. And they went, do you know how long five or ten minutes is over here? You there saying amen, serve over there. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But they were taught. They were directed. And they, 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 they looked for the truth to walk in. And this is what's happening here. And look, as a result, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It's only mentioned three times. It's mentioned here, at the trial of Paul. It's either Felix or Festus. He says, after such a short time, would, this is in Acts 26, would you, would you convince me to become a Christian? And then in 1 Peter 4, Peter says, if you're reviled and called Christian... And in all three cases, I don't think this is important because in the day of like Christian music and Christian media and even like they got testaments, Christian candy and all this stuff, you know what I'm talking about? Like the word Christian is only found three times in the New Testament because check this out. It was given from the outside, not from the inside. Christians called each other believers, disciples, brothers, sisters, family. That's how they refer to themselves. But it is interesting that all three times it's used, it's primarily it's used as, as, as coming from the outsiders. And what does this mean? Now, you need to know in the first century, it wasn't uncommon. This, this word in the New Testament literally means those associated with the Christ. And you, you, you run across in the Gospels like the Herodians. Those were those that identified with Herod. And you have different you have the, the Nicolaitans and Revelation, those that fall under a certain sect. And so the word Christian isn't like coming along like this is the first time that this word's ever been used, and the Christians show up in Antioch and they got t-shirts printed and they, they got their cool little QR, you know, business cards, and here we are. We're the Christians, drink our lemonade. That's not what it is at all. I would argue that because they were taught the word of God from an entire year, they begin to speak of Christ and look like Christ and emulate Christ and to be around these people, the outside world said, all they do is talk about Christ. Man, I'm convicted. How many people know me and yet don't know that I'm a Christian? How many people have interacted with me and don't know yet that Jesus really is my treasure? But you see this relationship of the word of God forming the people of God, and as a result, guess what they're known for? They're Christians. So what happens? Let's get to prophets real quick. Third statement I got for you this morning. The congregation was sensitive to the spirit and generous to Christ's people. So Barnabas and Saul teaching, and you see Christ's likeness formed in these people from encouragement and exhortation. And, and, and I would ask you real quick as, as we move on, like, like you, you need to encourage. And, and who are you encouraging? Who do you need to shoot a text to or an email or, or a card to this week and just encourage them? It's a great, great job, great opportunity. But notice, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. 
I cannot unpack for you what prophet means, but I can tell you this, that there are prophets in the early church. What I mean is I don't have time to unpack that. There were prophets in the early church, and they both foretold what would happen, and they exhorted and proclaimed the word that people already knew. And one guy's mentioned here, his name's Agabus. He came down with a group of prophets. They came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Why does it say they come down? Antioch's north. It's elevation, okay, geography. There's a group of these men. Agabus is also mentioned in Acts chapter 21. He prophesies there. And he stands up here and he says, by the Spirit, meaning he was prompted by the Spirit, that there was going to be in the future a great famine. Now, Luke tells us this happened in the rule of Claudius. Claudius ruled from 41 to 54 AD. So that either means that this story is taking place prior to 41 AD, or it's in the earlier stages of Claudius's reign, probably before 41 AD. And so, what happens? The church responds. And what do they do? Let's take up an offering. Let's get ahead of the problem. The Holy Spirit has tipped us off that something is going to happen. And if you look at church, if you look in in history, there was a a famine that came in the mid-40s, and it was most severe in Judea around 45 or 46 AD. And so the Spirit, through a prophet in the church, he speaks and the church responds. Now, now what's the goal of that? Let me me just make a few points here. The first point is that the congregation was sensitive to the Holy Spirit, okay? Okay. Now, let me just say something to you. We believe in the Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Can I just tell you, we're in a great danger because sometimes our Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Scripture. Let me ask you something. Now, don't miss what I'm about to say. Who do we worship? The Holy Scripture or the Holy Spirit? We worship the Spirit. He's God. Now, he authored the Scripture. Now, don't you dare leave here today and say, Luke doesn't value the Scripture because I've been preaching for it for a long time. Okay, here we go. I want you to see, and this is important. Listen to a guy named Sam Storms this week, pastor in, in Oklahoma City. He brought this point out. It's great. Notice in this congregation, there was not a conflict or a divergence between the Word of God and the Spirit of God, but a convergence. And in the New Testament, you find the Spirit speaking. He speaks. He prompts. We'll see it when we get to chapter 13. But we should never think theologically or practically that when the Spirit speaks, He is speaking against what He's already said in the Word. Now, Some people get prophetic, don't they? Most of the time, if somebody says they're a prophet, they're not a prophet, okay? That's kind of tip off. If you got to say you're an apostle, you're not an apostle, okay? And if you claim to be Captain Lay Apostle, well, sorry, bro. No more of those guys around, okay? Normally, if you have to announce that you're something, you're not it, okay? What I'm saying is think about in your life. We read the Bible, and what we believe takes place while we read the Bible is that we believe someone outside the Bible, the Holy Spirit, applies the Word of God to our heart. So there's no problem with that, right? As you go throughout the day, you may be in a situation, and all of a sudden, in a moment of inspiration, a thought comes to your mind, something comes to your heart, and a scripture comes to your heart. 
Something outside of you took the scripture, put it in your mind, put it in your heart. That's the work of the Spirit. So why can't there be in the local church this marriage of word and spirit? Just because we don't want to live in wildfire doesn't give us the right to live in deep freeze. I want to live in an atmosphere that the Holy Spirit speaks. Now, how do I know that the Holy Spirit speaks? Is that he will never say anything contrary to what he's already said in the Word. This is how we test that. So we don't know how Agabus spoke. We don't know if he was given a dream, a vision. But don't you love the fact that he's not riding like solo through this? There's a group of men called prophets that he's with, right? It's built in accountability. Hey, bro, be quiet. Like, no, man, that's breakfast. Like, just be quiet. Somebody comes up to you, says the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and then they start saying stuff. You're like, dude, that's Taco Bell, bro. The Spirit didn't say that. Be quiet. We got instructions, don't we, in the New Testament? Somebody says they had a word from God. But it doesn't jive with what's said in the word of God. Guess what? It's not the word of God. This is a delicate balance. What does that mean practically for us? I'm not sure that I can give you a concrete answer, but what I am trying to tell you is the congregation that God uses is one that is grounded in the word, and yet they're sensitive to the spirit. And we've seen examples where people just want one without the other, and I'm just telling you, we can't be New Testament. We can't be like these early believers were until we are grounded in the word and sensitive to the spirit. Maybe another time we can flesh out what that practically means. The point is what happened. They responded. I find it really interesting how they responded. They didn't respond in more prophetic utterance. They didn't respond in, you know, dreams and visions. You know what they did? They reached into their wallets and they pulled out money and they collected it. Because oftentimes, the most spiritual thing you can do is act upon what you've heard. That's the real test of spirituality. It's not the people that talk it, it's the people that go and do it. So what do they do? This is practice, so awesome. This is a practical form. They gather money up and they say, we are going to serve our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. I think there's a lot there because they say, they're the ones that first experienced the gospel. They're the ones that brought us the gospel. We want to honor them in their time of need. And so, The text ends this way, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Apparently, the apostles weren't the practical church leaders at this point. There was a group of men. Some people may think the apostles are the elders. The point is, notice there is a group of leadership and plurality at the church of Jerusalem, and they send trustworthy men to other trustworthy men to deliver the finances, to deliver the offering. Barnabas and Saul weren't reaching in it along the way. They faithfully delivered this. You can read more about this in Galatians chapter 2. What am I trying to get at? Their sensitivity to the Spirit responded in generosity to the church. So that begs a great question as we close out this morning. Are we sensitive to the Holy Spirit? Are we obedient to the Holy Spirit? And again, it's a balance. If we say that we are sensitive to the Holy Spirit and yet we don't give ourselves to the Word of God, we'll never hear the Spirit. We'll be confused that we hear the Spirit. But yet the fact that I ground myself in here allows myself every day to be led by him as he brings me to different places. I want us to end this morning and just 
Think about all that happened in this passage. There's different ministries in these 12 verses. And here they are. I want you to notice. There's evangelism at the first part. There's encouragement in the middle. There's teamwork. There's teaching. There's prophecy. And there's generosity. And if you go back and look, all of it was done by the Holy Spirit. And the reason I want to encourage you that this morning, we find in the scripture in 1 Corinthians 12, it lists a bunch of gifts. And then this is what Paul says. All these are empowered by the one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So can I just tell you this morning, in our local church, we need your spirit-empowered encouragement. We need your spirit-empowered evangelism. We we need your spirit-empowered generosity. We need you if you feel compelled to share something from the Lord. Guess what? We as pastors, we need to hear that. Of course, we reserve the right with every other believer to make sure that this is coming from the Holy Spirit. But who am I as a pastor to say, well, you know what? I'm the only one that gets to say something. You should hear us correct each other sometimes. It's fun. Do you know what that is? That's spirit-empowered teamwork. Can I just say thanks for letting a group of men serve you together? Thanks. It's better that way. And I just want to tell you, wherever you find yourself in Acts 11, whatever God's calling you to do, whatever you realize your giftings are, do it! Because without Barnabas encouraging, Agabus sharing doesn't, (laughs) nothing happens. And Barnabas can't come encourage if somebody wasn't out front sharing the gospel with the people that they had no way to connect with other than share the gospel. So these different ministries we see, there's a reason why Antioch becomes the sending church. Because what they sent out was authentic New Testament Christianity. May God make us a church like that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you that it's clear. But God, we have to submit to your word. Thank you that your word's greater than us. God, thank you that your word comes from you. The Holy Spirit moved on men of old to write. God, I pray my own life, and I pray this for my brothers and sisters this morning. God, may they be, may there be a convergence, not a divergence of word and spirit in our life. We just don't want to read words on a page that don't move our heart, that don't push us out in life. God, we want to be examples of truth on fire. Christ would be visible through our life. That Christianity wouldn't be a theory. That it wouldn't be an idea. But that it would be flesh and blood. God, as we learn more and more of the word of God, I pray that people would see us and dare label us as somebody that identifies with Christ. 
God, who's our one? Who's our three? Who's our five? Lord, you may have called us to people that we have no connection with. God, we see these unsung heroes just banking it all on who Jesus is. Help us to follow their example. God, bring people to our minds that we need to encourage intentionally, people in this room, people outside this room, to exhort to be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So God, we pray for your help in that. And God, again, I, I pray for people in this room that don't know you, that may be just far from grace and far from God or people that are just so self-righteous, banking on their own religion. God, would you strip all that away and show them that Jesus is their only hope. Lord, thank you for a congregation that wants to be taught the word of God. Thank you for a congregation that wants to know you, not just in theory. God, work your word in us. As we sit before the Lord this morning in prayer, I would just encourage you to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. If you don't know him this morning, the good news of the gospel, you can know him. He died and was buried and rose again so that you might be forgiven of your sins and know God personally. So this morning, turn from your sins and believe in Christ. Maybe you need to encourage somebody. Maybe you need to be generous with somebody. Maybe you need to ask for more spirit sensitivity through the word in your heart. So maybe as we sing in just a moment, maybe you just need to stay seated and pray. You can do that. A few of us will be back at the sound booth on either side if you need counsel with us if you'd like for us to pray for you if you're struggling with something that's why we're here you can hit us up this week too let's be obedient to the word and the spirit this morning let's stand Daniel you lead us brother